I'm Paige Waterhouse. And I'm Nabil Reza. From the Cavalier Daily, this is On Record. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of On Record. This week we're taking a break from news to introduce you guys to an interesting project happening here at the university. Joining us this week for our first ever feature episode is Professor Kristen Nagley, Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Her group, the Nagley Research Lab, recently published a paper in the scientific journal eLife entitled Aspen, a methodology for reconstructing protein evolution with improved accuracy using ensemble models. Obviously, the work can get pretty high level, but basically what the lab did was create a better roadmap of protein evolution. Scientists have created plenty of models for how some key proteins have evolved. Scientists have created plenty of models for how some key proteins have evolved. This paper outlines the work Professor Nagley's group has done to create software to combine different models and create a better understanding of the evolutionary process of these key proteins. This work was primarily done with Roman Slotsky, a PhD student in Professor Nagley's lab at the time, and now a postdoctoral researcher at UMass Amherst. We sat down with Professor Nagley to talk more about her recent publication and its implications. I'm Kristen Nagley. I am an associate professor of biomedical engineering. I have an affiliation with computer science and engineering, and I am a resident faculty member of the Center for Public Health Genomics, all at University of Virginia. Could you just tell us about your work in general and um, how you got interested in this area and like where you started out? Uh, sure. So um, just as a background, I actually started out as an electrical engineer. Um, I did my master's in high-frequency circuit design, which is super interesting, but very far from uh, working in evolution and cell signaling. So my lab at University of Virginia, uh, which relocated from Washington University just about a year ago, is really interested in trying to understand how cells make decisions. And so uh, we study the biochemical networks that the cells are using to process information from the outside and convert that into something the cell's supposed to do. And the processes we study are also the things that are, so they're important to how cells do the things they're supposed to do, like develop or differentiate into human tissues, and then they can go awry and create disease. And so we're trying to chip away at this really big problem. Um, so the molecule we study, there are 46,000 of them at least that we know about in the human um, proteome. And just to kind of give you an, a comparison, um, that means on average every two human proteins carry one of these modifications. And so. Um, so it's a bit of a sort of a, uh, a loop that we ended up in evolution, but my grad student at the time, Roman Slotsky, who's the first author of this work, really thought that if we could understand how um, some of the proteins that are involved or the domains, we call them domains, um, so pieces of proteins that perform really similar functions, and so they're highly conserved across lots of proteins that share them. Uh, we really thought that if we had a good model of how those evolved, we might be able to use that model um, to start to chip away at this question of what are these things doing and how are they regulated. And um, so, yes, yeah, so that's how we ended up in, in the work. So in these sort of fields, ex advances are being made at like almost an exponential rate. When you were in our positions in undergrad, our understanding of these mechanisms was completely different. In your opinion, what has been like the biggest advance in your field that has fundamentally been a paradigm shift that if we were to learn about your field today would be completely different than what you were learning? So it's interesting because as an, the fact that I was an engineer, I had never taken a biology class. I had to take in one quarter of chemistry 
So in a sense, um, I will project what I would have been taught, <laughs> I think, if I had been in biology at that time. And in my field, what's really fascinating, the, the, I'd say the one real fundamental change is the ability to capture systems level information about the fact that these occur. So this process that we studied was only discovered in 1978, which uh, happened as a result of a mistake. Um, so that's 1978. I will be honest, I was born in 1978. So essentially in my lifetime, we've gone from not knowing it's happened or exists to knowing a few of them exist and people thinking, oh, it happens, but it's probably not a lot, to essentially the ability to identify these in human cells, uh, to enrich for them, and to like measure them like unmasked essentially going from essentially knowing there's hundreds I would say that it, when I was an undergrad there must have been about a hundred to 500 of these that were, could have been placed in the human proteome and now we know there's 46,000. So just as a clarification when you are talking about like you know these proteins you use a lot of pronouns there could you explain what the function of these proteins are how they're um, relevant to everyday life? Yeah, yeah. So this process that we study, so there's lots of different kinds of processes, biochemical processes that happen in the cell when cells are kind of taking information from the outside and converting it. The very specific things I'm alluding to is what's called phosphorylation, tyrosine phosphorylation. So very specifically the phosphorylation of a tyrosine um, amino acid on a, on a protein. That is catalyzed by a tyrosine kinase, so that's the catalytic domain. In fact, um, this work, we used a tyrosine kinase domain as sort of the root on which we then synthesized a whole lot of homologous proteins to it. One of the things that these um, tyrosine phosphorylation sites do when they exist is to drive protein-protein to interactions. And so they do that by recognition by a domain called SH2 domains. Um, and that was the domain Roman and I were specifically trying to understand. So we were really trying to understand if there's 120 SH2 domains in the human proteome, and there's 46,000 tyrosine phosphorylations that can occur, which pair of interactions is going to happen and to what extent? If we think about this in like, as an analogy, we have these proteins that were synthesized, which have already gone through some um, regulation as far as if they're expressed or not. And they have to be essentially activated by this, by this kinase. So like, uh, if we think of them like Legos, the proteins that you're looking at essentially put those connectors on there so that they can interact, is that about right? Yeah, that's a good analogy. And um, one example, too, just so you can have a tangible reason of why this matters, um, insulin receptor uses this uh, signaling mechanism as a really important process. So, so what happens when insulin comes into certain types of cells, um, very specifically, I believe it is muscle and fat. So what happens is insulin comes on, kicks off a whole cascade of these sort of Lego building blocks. Um, hundreds to thousands probably before all this you know before you get to the process where you make a new protein you translocate it to the cell surface and that is the glute 4 or the translocation unit that allows glucose to now enter the cell so um, insulin is one example of a, um, a system that only works because of uh, essentially these these sort of lego building blocks i I'm obviously an English and media studies major. This is not my area of expertise. So you're tracing these proteins and you're talking about the different reactions or connections in between them. And then I'm just confused how this connects to your models that you're yeah. working on. So if you could just yeah. clarify the connection exactly. between there. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really big loop-to-loop uh, -loop that we did in the lab, which is we start over here trying to understand sort of like a fundamental process. Mm -hmm. um, and so the evolution models are trying to take any one of those components I mentioned, like the SH2 domain. So there's 120 of them. And we have some other algorithms, for example, that are we're trying to say, 
identify what about that domain allows it to recognize the insulin receptor but not another receptor, if that makes sense. And so we really thought evolution would help. Um, and the and the two key pieces of or of homology in proteins is whether or not a protein is orthologous to another protein because it exists in two species, but they're the same protein. So like the insulin receptor in mouse and the insulin receptor in human, for example, would be considered orthologs. But um, there are some really homologous proteins in humans called insulin growth factor receptors, those are called paralogs. And so what we're trying to figure out in this algorithm is if we want to understand why the insulin receptor and the insulin growth factor receptor are different in terms of the things that they catalyze, then seeing where they duplicated in a, some ancient species and then were essentially inherited through evolution to arise today would allow us to essentially start to say like what mattered in terms of maintaining the insulin receptor specificity, for example, versus the insulin growth factor receptor specificity. Is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Um, so could you speak more a little bit about the development of this new software that came out with your research paper? Yeah. So I think Roman, um, in the article, they interviewed Roman and he did a really good job kind of highlighting where he started, which is, so we, we start with this idea that we'd like a model, um, of the thing he was interested in studying. There was already one model published, but he, wanted to sort of redo that model because that model was old and kind of getting back to genetics like we've come a long way and uh roman was really surprised because essentially you know he started to wonder like is there such a thing as one right model and how do we get to that right model and um my own research and my phd work and throughout the lab has always kind of been this idea of all models are probably problematic maybe we can't capture something about especially something like evolution where we can never really know what happens so we're taking our best guess and we're kind of a kind of a placing some sort of mathematical constraint that says that it, what it should look like. And then we trust that, even though we don't really know if it's true. And so Roman started to essentially make lots of models. And he was thinking he might see one model he would observe a lot of times across all these different models. And so maybe that would be the model that's most accurate. And then what he ended up finding was that was not the case. He, did never, he never saw the same model repeated twice. Um, including the model that most people would use. So we never saw that model that was already published. Um, and so that's how it started. And so um, we use a lot of what's called ensemble approaches. This really just means we're going to ask, um, we're just going to like average or integrate across lots and lots of solutions. I have the paper open right now and it's 27 pages. If you were to communicate this to like, you know, a lay person or someone with like high school biology and, and math, how would you, um, describe it how would you um, explain um, sort of what you did and why you went about it that way yeah great question so um, I would say that this is for my my aunt because she's really interested in my science but she's in finance and has no idea so the analogy we came up with um, which I think is 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 something that's kind of easy to think about is not to think about evolution which happens across really large expanses of time but think of your think of a map and so think about uh, essentially trying to take a guess at something about that map. So let's say, you know, you go from here to Target and somebody asked me, how did Paige get from here, from University of Virginia to Target? And I could come up with a model and I would probably guess that Route 29 was involved, right? But then let's say Paige goes to New York City and I'm asked to come up with a model for that. So, so now already just in thinking about spatial distance, it gets harder and harder to guess how somebody could have taken a route through space if that space gets longer and longer, farther and farther apart. 
But essentially, the essence of this paper ends up being the following, which is if you ask me what Paige's route is, and we ask Nabil what Paige's route is, and we ask somebody else what Paige's route is, all of those routes might be different. But the thing that might be shared the most common across all of those routes might be more likely to actually capture the route that Paige took up to Target. So essentially, there's kind of two main things that we find, which is if we kind of look at how similar some features of these models are across lots and lots of models that we make, that can give us two pieces of information, something that gives us a more accurate model. So when we create one model or many models that are most consistent with the observations, those are more accurate than any model that was in, a, in the ensemble in the first place. And the second thing is if we ask how reproducible a model is, that gives us a, a, a way to measure something that actually directly correlates with accuracy. And so this was super exciting because we can't know what evolution actually did, but now what we can kind of do is ask, well, if I make a model of evolution and then I ask how reproducible that model is, I get a way of actually understanding if it's accurate or inaccurate or somewhat accurate. So what impacts do these accurate models that you're discovering have on molecular biology or I guess just evolutionary biology as a whole? Yeah, I think our hope is, um, so in our field anyway, I think evolutionary biologists are really, really well aware of the fact that there are probably inaccuracies and it's evidenced by the fact that people keep making new algorithms to make these models better. They, and you know, uh, and, and, and trying to ways to assess them in different ways. But molecular biologists tend to t take off components that are made by evolutionary biologists and apply them to their problem. So as an example, one of the proteins in our, in our field of study, the things that are like the enzymes that catalyze this modification I mentioned, um, has been cited 6,000 times or over 6,000 times. So people are kind of using these maps. And they're using them for all sorts of things, including um, how, do, how does a drug target? So if a drug is designed to hit one of these, but there are 95 of them that are really homologous, how do we understand how that drug hits? And could we, in fact, use evolution to design better therapeutics to remove off-target effects that are most detrimental? Um, that, is the, that is actually where we hope to go with this work. So with this field in general, I imagine like you sometimes think back to like the proto-protein that got us to this place. And a lot of how it developed into a modern day protein is kind of, you know, random and um, often like mistakes and just, you know, one in a million chances. Does thinking about that kind of like make you think about who we are as humans? Uh, interesting. So I actually, I'll say I use the map analogy because in a way my mind can't even process <laughs> the evolutionary timeframes that we're even thinking about um, or going back to like sort of like the, both the accidental and the non-accidental or sort of pressures that led to these things. So in a way I think I sleep at night because I, I don't, I don't try to think too, too deeply about like the meaning of the universe, but it is interesting. It is, but it, but it is all very humbling, right? It is. I think too one of the most interesting pieces that has been humbling about this as well is is despite major advances what we ultimately saw was for the most part none of these models are ever right and even though with trying to integrate across them we get better there are still complex problems that we can't solve um, and we know we can't solve yet completely getting there so you spoke kind of of the application to medicine and with like a push towards personalized medicine do you think that the understanding of the um, evolutionary pathways that got us to modern proteins and even like modern mutations that cause in proteins that cause disease is going to be important um, when we're pursuing specific personalized medicines or when we're looking at different 
drug pathways um, or do you think that we kind of just need to understand what we have now and not necessarily the history behind it? I think probably both. So I think, you know, the hope is understanding, if we understand truly like evolution, we're kind of essentially asking about selection pressures. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting questions too with regards to some of the processes that we work on in the cell, including like how does the fact that so many proteins have expanded in humans. In terms of, of what it means for personalized medicine, I've seen some really cool work um, from Penn State at Justin Pritchard's lab, for example, who's thinking about how does, how does adding a drug change the selection landscape and what matters most about essentially uh, the mutations that then can arise. And so so in cancer therapy, for example, we're really kind of working a lot now on um, understanding essentially resistance mechanisms because we can design a drug and that drug does pretty well for a while and then it stops working and it's because the cells essentially have adapted or overcome. Can we understand something about how that protein or gene could have sampled that space and how quickly it could sample it and could we predict out? Understanding how those things are selected for could help us in terms of identifying treatments and I think for us we work on these multi-component systems so thinking about evolution of all of them and tan you know that they influence each other is not something that we have as part of our models yet and I guess thinking about this in a broader context it's mentioned that your research is published in a magazine that allows other scientists to pick up your data and use it in other projects and compare it to their findings can you talk about some of the effects you hope or you think your data will have in the science world yeah, I think, um, so So Roman made this beautiful synthetic data set that is based on a real protein family, but has like a known, we evolved a known thing. And we think that alone is really helpful because as we think about uh, improving the algorithm or testing the algorithm, it, it was fundamentally the reason we could like even test these ideas. So that's available, as is the code. And I think I think my, my biggest hope really is that molecular biologists who are prone to use these um, evolutionary maps because they're really useful visualization tools might start thinking differently about how and what they interpret from them and the idea that there could be errors. Um, and my, my big hope is whether people use our algorithm specifically is people start thinking about drawing conclusions from multiple viable models. And two, that can be the case in this particular problem of evolution. But in my lab, we've done this before in other kinds of models, like how do we take data and try to infer like the primary structure that underlies it. So this is called machine learning, right? And so, so we do a lot of machine learning and we fundamentally, you know, like those same fundamental ideas come in, which is, you know, you can put input into an algorithm, you can get an output, you know, and maybe that outputs the right output for that particular algorithm and couldn't find any other specific thing. That's what we're seeing in these evolutionary models too. But that doesn't mean that's right, right? And it doesn't mean it's most useful. So how do we make these models most useful? So you mentioned a little bit earlier, but I just would like to get a firmer comment on what you think this research and the data that you've put out will have on cancer research or other forms of disease research. And it might be a little bit myopic because I'm working on this next phase myself, which is pharmacology. So the family I mentioned, kinases, happen to be one of the largest class of proteins targeted by FDA-approved drugs. And so when we think about, in addition to, to radiation and chemo, we're developing next-generation medicines that target these specific kinases. And so there's a lot of hope, but they, they're considered, you'll hear called different things, sometimes called dirty drugs, call, sometimes called what's called poly polypharmacology, which is the idea that they really have more than one intended target. 
Um, and so I think that's our that's our hope in terms of an application next is to make these to make this algorithm tractable to generating real models for really large protein families. So imagine again like sort of a like a map of the United States and then putting little pins on it all across the US trying to conclude from that that like there's something about it or not about the evolution that matters or the spatial dimension in the map case. But if your map is wrong, your conclusions are wrong. So so in a sense, I feel like right now, the application of, of evolution is limited. And our quest- next question is, can we make it less limited because we can essentially understand the problems that underlie that map and then make better maps and see if there's coordination and where there's coordination and what you can do about that. So like big picture, you're trying to create a map that can um, change these like imperfect non-target specific drugs into something where you can target this specific process or this specific phosphorylation. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think sometimes too, the beauty of polypharmacology or, or these pharmacologies is that they might target several things that are good. And so then the question becomes, it, you know, so maybe not all off-target off, here off targets in quotes because off target being like well it's, it was meant to be a really specific inhibitor to the specific kinase and in fact it, it inhibits these 10 to 15 kinases which, you know but you get clinical benefit and so the question becomes what pieces of the clinical benefit do you want to keep and then which ones do you need to remove because that's also what's causing your secondary effects this kind of goes to the idea of communication of science to the public. Do you think that scientists need to do a better job of communicating their work to the public? And if so, what are some of the problems being caused by a lack of this communication? I don't know. You know, we can look at something like climate change and ask, is that because scientists aren't relaying this information to the public? But I think we know that's not the case, right? So, you know, I think like some of the big things that are going on in our society around science, especially those that impact humanity and choices that we as voters for some, right? That I think that's, that's sort of like the most important, like of the science that's outside of my realm that do I need to know about? I need scientists to be able to like disseminate that information when I go to vote for candidates. And that can be science around anything. I think one of the biggest things we see is misinformation in vaccines, right? So. Uh, and how did that happen? I have to say the thing that's scary to me about that isn't that scientists were poor at relaying that vaccines do not cause autism. It was the fact that poor research led to a movement that essentially outshined that. So I guess I guess that's where I see issues. And I don't know that that's up to scientists. I think that's up to society to figure out how are we going to separate scientific truths from scientific untruths. To get to your position leading a lab, being a faculty, it's obviously a long journey. What keeps you going through it? If you were, you know, an excited ninth grader being like, I want to do science, what kept that drive going all the way to get here? Yeah, so I'll have to say, too, I have this different perspective because I was not a scientist. I was an engineer until my PhD. And then I would say I'm still grappling with whether I'm an engineer or I'm a scientist, but recognizing I think you can be both. They have complementary and overlapping skill sets. So for me, what I has always driven me, because I think about the thing, I mostly just love the pursuit of knowledge and when things get really hard, actually. Um, so when I was an electrical engineering major um, and I did a master's in high-frequency circuit design, that's like really, that's like, like super hard, but I was... Um, for me, I guess, in terms of thinking of a trajectory, like why did I change, came down to looking forward, even though I loved my day-to-day stuff, the major industries at the time were telecommunications and defense. And I just didn't see myself 
staying engaged in that process for the rest of my career. But I'd always had this real interest in human health. And so as a master's student, I took my first biology course, started to really love that, started to see, you know, there was this major called biomedical engineering where you could be an engineer and learn biology. So the first biology class, like real biology class I took was as a graduate student. I think I finally sat in organic chemistry and did all of those things later. So I guess, you know, and then what keeps me going as a professor? Right. Because there's all these I mentioned all of this like really hard, you know, like you can get rejected all the time for grants and reject all the time. And the thing that keeps me going now is both the science and the people, specifically my lab and the students in my lab. And it is also great to be at a university where we're in a rich environment of, of colleagues and collaborators who are doing really similar things. And so I think finding people, I guess maybe the essence of that being finding, finding people who love what you also love and finding shared pursuits kind of allows you to keep going. So one more, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned that you're a recent um, transplant to Charlottesville and to the UVA community. You know, what have you enjoyed here? What's your favorite part of UVA? What's your favorite part of Charlottesville? What do you think of the learning environment? You know, the undergrads. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was at Washington University, which is also a fabulous undergraduate institution, and and St. Louis is a wonderful city. I I have to say that number one, my lifestyle here. So St. Louis was a great place to be, but I had I had ended up having like a 45 minute commute. And so I was spending an hour and a half just in the car, plus a train ride, plus a walk. And uh, I now have an eight minute bike ride. So, so like the smallish town, um, like really enables essentially uh, a lifestyle. So now I get, I get an extra hour and a half, either way you want to look at it with my family or with my lab or, (laughs) or split between those two things or cooking dinner. Um, So that's amazing. And I love the fact that Charlottesville is is a small town, but has uh, more metropolitan access to things like theater and food that I think you don't always get in typical college towns. As far as the undergrads, um, I have been just floored both in teaching them. So I taught our BME capstone last semester in the spring, and and then I've got three undergraduates now in the lab. So I've always been a big proponent. I think if I added it up, I think I've had 25 undergraduates uh, work in the lab throughout. So the undergrad, I think that the the undergraduates are amazing. I have to say too, one of the things I really love that UVA is unique in, especially in engineering, the science and technology and society component of UVA, um, thinking about societal impacts is the best I've seen. Right, and uh, it's not in other engineering curriculums. So I love that about the undergraduate education component here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much to Professor Nagley for speaking to us. Professor Nagley wanted us to be clear that if you have an interest in science or engineering, you should pursue it, and there are many ways to do so. She says not to be discouraged if you don't see yourself in a traditional lab or engineering role and to follow your passions. On Record is written by Jackson Postal, Peyton Guthrie, Will Bird, and Abigail Quinn. The show is produced by Grace Bluehardy, Sarah Dunkley, and Lydia Wilcox. Our editor is Abby Klukey. I'm Nabil Reza. And I'm Paige Waterhouse, and this has been On Record.